You are listening to the Mother Good Podcast, episode number 41. I'm your host, Emily Carney. We at Mother Good believe that there's no way to be a perfect mom, but many ways to be a good one. Our content is judgment-free within the context of evidence-based research. This episode is sponsored by usualwines.com. Go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our discount code MOTHERGOOD for $8 off your first order and try your first glass of wine on us. One thing I really like about Usual Wines is that their wine comes in single-serve portions. Every bottle is 6.3 ounces, so that's basically a heavy pour or about a glass and a half of wine, which is perfect for someone like me whose husband doesn't really enjoy bubbly wine. And so now I can finally just have my glass of bubbly wine and not have to just waste the rest of the bottle. Their wines come from world-class American viticultural areas in California, including Napa, Sonoma, and Santa Barbara. And another thing that I love about Usual Wines is that they are low carb and have zero grams of sugar. I just discovered recently that wine in the U.S. is allowed to have over 60 additives and sugar is actually an additive that's allowed to be put into wine. But Usual Wines only uses the sugar from the grapes themselves and then they ferment the wine until there's no more sugar left in the wine. So that's how you get a wine with zero grams of sugar. So be sure you go check out Usual Wines at www.usualwines.com and use our promo code MOTHERGOOD for $8 off your first order. Welcome to another episode of the Mother Good Podcast. Today's guest is Mary Lenneberg, and I'm so excited to share her story with you. She is a speaker and an author, and her book, Be Brave in the Scared, is about her journey with her second child, Courtney, and the difficult aspects of raising her, and then also the joyful aspects as well. Before I get into detail about this episode, I just wanted to place a trigger warning at the beginning of this episode, because this episode does involve loss of a child. So if you find it difficult to listen to those sorts of stories, or you just want to avoid it for now, I wanted to warn you ahead of time that that is discussed a lot in this episode. So just be aware of that before you continue listening. As Mary shares in this episode, her second child, Courtney, started suffering from seizures when she was about five weeks old. And then after that, ended up having a severe allergic reaction to some sort of medication that they gave. And that allergic reaction really impacted Courtney for the rest of her life, as Mary shares in this episode. I'm really thankful that we could have Mary on this episode because we've only had younger-ish moms on the show so far. And while it's always great to get different perspectives of other moms around our same age or similar age or having kids under the age of 18, we haven't had a mother on yet who has children over the age of 18 and has that life experience and wisdom. And Mary definitely has so much of that that she shares in this episode and the struggles that she and her husband went through with raising Courtney, the struggles that they had with their older son, the struggles in their marriage that accompanied all of that. And she also shares how they overcame all of that. And I really love, and I really love what she recommends to others who might be going through a really difficult life experience as well. In addition to Mary sharing her wisdom about going through a difficult season in both life and your marriage, she also shares how she overcame body image issues, which I'm sure every single mom can relate to at some point in her motherhood journey, accepting and loving her body. And so Mary shares her wisdom on that as well. So without further ado, here is my amazing conversation with Mary. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to talk with you. I, it's such a privilege to be with you, Emily. Um, I'm looking forward to the conversation. Well, as I was just mentioning in our chat before we hit record that we've had pretty much all younger moms on the show, and it will be nice to finally hear from someone who has more wisdom, because I know that your children you know, are grown and that uh, you just have a lot more life experience. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. So before we dive into your motherhood story and all that wisdom, could you just tell us about yourself and your background, where you're from, and sort of your life trajectory? 
trajectory so far? Sure. Um, so I'm Mary Lenneberg. It's a joy to be with everybody today. I have been married for 32 years to my one and only blind date, my husband, Jerry. Um, we were gifted with four souls, two that we lost to miscarriage. And then our son, Jonathan, will be 31 in November. And our daughter, Courtney, um, was 22 when she passed away um, and is now been home with the Lord almost six years. So I was a stay-at-home mom. I, I have a two-year college degree, an associate of arts degree. I was a stay-at-home mom um, simply because my husband was in the Navy. He was a Naval Academy graduate. So he was in the Navy um, and it required um, a lot of uh, time alone for the first couple of years of our marriage. He was deployed quite a bit. So for me to work and have small children, it just wasn't feasible at that time. And then our daughter, Courtney, started having seizures when she was five weeks old. And so um, it required a lot of doctor's appointments and things of that nature. And then when she was seven months old, she had an allergic reaction to medication. And that actually brought on the majority of her disabilities that she dealt with the remainder of her life. So for 22 years, I was a stay-at-home mom and in basically a mobile ICU unit and, um, and dealt with a lot of uh, crisis management. And, um, and then after God brought Courtney home, um, I went out into the workforce and worked for a pro-life um, OBGYN, worked for the parish as a liturgical um, administrator. And then um, I guess about three years ago, I was approached to write a book about our experience with Courtney. And a year ago, it was published with Ave Maria Press called Be Brave and the Scared. And this afternoon, I will turn in the final edits for my second book called Be Bold and the Broken. So now I'm a speaker and an author, and I get to take all that I've learned and all that I've been through as a married woman and as a mother and um, bring it out to the world and encourage others that uh, God does indeed love us and have a plan for our lives. And when we surrender to him and his plan, what comes is something so much bigger and bolder and brighter than we could ever imagine. That's beautiful. And congratulations on your second book. I didn't realize that you just are you are turning in this the final edits today. So that's so exciting. Uh, before we get into your motherhood story, I know that you also talk a lot about on social media about uh, marriage and, and your spouse, your relationship with your spouse. How, how did you meet your spouse? I know that you said a blind date, but I, I would just love to hear that. I know everyone loves a good love story. <laughs> loves a good meeting story. Yeah, Jerry and I, um, so uh, my dear friend Kim had um, a boyfriend who attended the Naval Academy and he had duty one weekend. And back in the day, this was in 1986. So that dates me. I'm going to be 53 in September. So a, a while back in the day, they used to have these gatherings at the academy because there weren't enough women that were midshipmen yet to kind of um, uh, have enough, shall we say, of a pool for dating. And so they would bring in all of these young women from the local colleges. They would just come in on a Saturday night. And so Kim's boyfriend had duty and he could go to Dahlgren Hall where they had these mixers and he said he would set us up on a blind date if Kim would be able to drive in. So we lived about an hour away. I grew up in the Archdiocese of Washington in Rockville, Maryland, right outside of D.C. So we drove in one night and my blind date that evening did not show up. Oh. So Jerry, in his, you know, uh, just infinite grace, really, of that moment, had two women uh, that were his dates for the night. And he handled it beautifully. Uh, he was very funny, very handsome, very kind, a true gentleman. And through the course of the evening, another gentleman came up to the table, a friend of theirs, and he had a sparkle in his eye for um, Christy, who was actually Jerry's blind date. And the two of them went off and discussed, would it be okay if this other gentleman asked Christy to dance? And Jerry left it up to Christy and Christy thought he was cute. So they went off and then Jerry and I <laughs> spent the rest of the evening together. And uh, yeah, it was... Um, totally unexpected and just a great gift. Uh, I remember of that night, just the laughter. He made me laugh. Um, and I had so much hairspray, but when we had a slow dance and we were kind of, you know, warm, um, my head stuck to his face. It was great. And I had to kind of peel it off. It was lovely. So, uh, yeah, we were married two years after that, but, uh, yeah, that started the great adventure. You know, God always likes it. I, I told Jerry, I said, I'm, I've been a drama queen my whole life. So he really up the ante when it came to our, our courtship and our marriage. So 
It's never been dull. Not one day <laughs> in 32 years has it ever been dull. I love that story so much. I just saw um, a post that you made about a week ago, just the lightning round of questions about your marriage. And I remember you saying something about Jerry being hilarious and keeping it funny. So that that just... I, Can you imagine what it was like for him? Like, <laughs> he, he, I mean, he probably, you know, you ask him now and he's like, well, I felt like I struck gold, but it was a little awkward, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> typical Navy man, you're just kind of like, oh, okay. But no, it's, you know, God has a plan. And, and as I actually write about this in the second book, you know, I had had some experiences before then that were not so positive. Mm-hmm. And so I had told God I wasn't going to date. I wasn't, he was going to literally have to drop him in front of me. <laughs> like that was the deal. And <clears throat> he literally dropped him in front of me. I love so. that so much. <laughs> that so that kind of reminds story. me a little bit about um, my my husband and I, we, we met in our late 20s and it was funny because I, I was just, we were both pretty jaded about dating and just kind of over it. So I, I just joked with people that I was going to get like a mail order husband because I was just so <laughs> over it. But it, what's kind of funny is that we we met online on, on Catholic Match. So we met online and then um, he ended up moving right around like a few months after we had met online and out to California where I live. So it almost was sort of like a mail order husband. <laughs> It was a Catholic version of the mail order bride. There you go. Exactly. Catholic version, you know. Exactly. I mean, I, you know, God works through all things. He and and what we give up on, what we become jaded about, it's just amazing how he kind of comes in and says, there's no need to be jaded about it. Just trust me. I got this. Exactly. And it's our, you know, it's our mistrust of him and our lack of confidence in ourselves and our own abilities and what he gave us that kind of messes up the whole thing if we just kind of you know, it's kind of like Peter, the, the, the scripture from this past weekend, Peter walking on the water. He had the guts to get out in the boat on a stormy night. He was a fisherman. He knew it was storming. He had the guts to get in the boat. And then he had the guts to ask Jesus to say, to call him out. And then he had the guts to go out. Exactly. But it's when he took his eyes from him that he started to sink. And it was like, okay, where's the lesson there? Oh, wait. We need to just have faith and have confidence. Mm-hmm. That that yeah, exactly. Because when we become jaded, just as you said, it kind of just makes us rely completely on God besides our own merits or our own abilities. So, I feel like that's the perfect transition actually to talk about uh, your journey through motherhood. I know that uh, it must still be difficult to share. Um, you know aspects of the story, but I really like how you talk about it on social media and you bring out the joy in the story as well. So I'd love for you to share some of the the difficult and sorrowful aspects of motherhood and just, you know, how you got through those and what your journey was like. Sure. Um, it's, it gets, I have to say it gets easier with age. Um, and I mean that in that, um, Courtney's story and Jonathan, you know, my children, they are such a gift to me that it is a joy to share them with the world. So, um, and the ebb and flow of grief is that, that, um, is such that there are days where it's really hard and other days where it's like, that's just life, you know, and you just kind of move through it. So, um, I was ill prepared to be a mother. Uh, I always wanted to be a mom, but I was, I'm number two of eight. So I felt like I had all this experience in babysitting land and I'm the oldest daughter. I have six brothers. And so when God gave me Jonathan, I was like, oh, I got this. I have six brothers. Well, I was clueless. I was 22. We had been married for a little over a year and I, you know, babies have their own schedule. They have their own way of doing things. And then um, we had another miscarriage. We had one before Jonathan, one after Jonathan, and then Courtney came along and she really was kind of like the earthquake to our world. When she was five weeks old on the day of her baptism, she started having grandma seizures. And um, we thought it was something that could be fixed, you know. So we ended up on the day of her baptism. By that night, we were in the ICU. I had a two and a half year old with me. My husband was active duty in the Navy. He literally had to leave the ICU, drive back to Maine because we were in Maryland for Courtney's baptism where all my family was. And we were moving to DC the next week. So he had to leave his daughter in the ICU, not knowing if she would survive the night because we thought at that point she had a brain tumor or something else was happening and he had to go. And I I often think of that time as who had a harder time. I got to stay with her. You know, I got to hold her. I got to be with Jonathan, 
But Jerry had to say goodbye to everybody and not know what was going to happen. So that, you know, that's kind of the beginning point with our journey with Courtney. And what happened over the course of 22 years was really miraculous. And I I don't use that word lightly. Um, Like I said, I was ill-prepared to be a mother. And then to be a mother of a special needs child, I did not feel like I had any kind of qualification to do that. Um, I had to learn. I'm dyslexic. So I had to learn a whole new vocabulary. I had to learn how to be an advocate. I had to learn um, a vocabulary of neurology, pulmonology, all of these very complicated things that I really um, struggled to understand so that I could actually have a conversation with her physicians so that I could advocate for her in the best way possible. When she was seven months old, um, we gave her a medication that the doctors were very excited. They thought that this was going to be what stops the seizures. And what ended up happening is Courtney had an allergic reaction to that medication. So she, her brain swelled, her kidney and liver shut down. And, you know, basically her body went septic within 72 hours and she almost died. And at that point, we kind of stopped for a moment because here we were trying to help our daughter and we gave permission for her to be harmed. And we didn't even know it. You know, we were just trying to do our best. And it's a great example of how even when you're doing your best, things can be, things can get messed up and, and harm can come and uh, hard things arrive. And what we were dealing with from that point on was a child who was cortically blind. She never superseded seven to nine months in development. She never walked on her own. She never spoke on her own. She sounded a lot like Chewbacca from Star Wars. Uh, she certainly had her own opinions and she had her way of expressing herself. But we'll never know what it would have been like uh, to have the Courtney without that medication because that's just, that's the choice we made. And, and we made it on good medical advice and sound medical advice and all the pretest, she showed no reaction. So we were given the go ahead and we went and tried it. And so after that, we got very cautious. We pulled into ourselves a lot more. And um, that's kind of when my battle with God over her and our future began. And it became very jaded for probably the next seven years, where basically she was a Porsche. And anytime anything was slightly out of whack, the whole thing went down. That's what we called her. She was a very high-end car. And so everything had to be working together in order for all to be well. And when she had was sick, or when she um, had a tummy ache, or when something was hurting her, you know, um, she couldn't tell us. So the whole ship went down. And it was just really hard. It was really hard. I was drowning um, in a sea of medical um, tragedy. And we had a, another child who was two and a half years older than she was. And here he was in preschool and then in kindergarten and then in first and second grade. And he was drowning in emotions because all he saw were his parents, uh, you know, yelling at one another because we were so stressed out. And then um, he had no place to put the emotions as a little boy. So he was a mess. Our marriage was a mess. What she brought forth in that crisis was we were both dealing with um, this situation wrongly. Uh, Jerry, uh, it was revealed he had an addiction to pornography. I myself was dealing with an addiction to food. Um, And so it was just a dumpster fire. It was a dumpster fire of the highest proportions. And we really, really struggled until Courtney was about seven. And when she was seven, we had an experience on a healing pilgrimage to Lourdes where um, we felt we heard our daughter's voice kind of telling us and encouraging us that she knew what her job was and our job was to love her and be her hands and feet. And it was just a very uh, powerful seven days. It was life-changing for us. But we didn't understand um, the impact of it for another, uh, gosh, four years. It was 2004 when we really got it. And um, at that point, when you have this kind of conversion of heart and of mind, no matter where it comes from, whether from your own self-discovery, from your whatever your faith is or your religious belief is, um, transformations happen, right? Whether we we initiate them or we believe God initiates them or what, what have you. When you come through this kind of transformation, 
everything in your life changes. Everything looks differently. And that's what happened to us over the course of those four years. We came to a place of understanding and a place of peace and acceptance and surrender that Courtney, even though she couldn't do what Jonathan could do, even though she couldn't um, have what we would call a typical or normal life, that God does not make mistakes. And he had allowed what he had allowed for a very specific purpose. And she had a mission to accomplish. And she needed us to help her. And so that's what we did for the next, uh, gosh, 10 years. We lived in a very different way at that point. Jerry and I got help. We got counseling. We got family counseling. Jonathan got counseling. Um, He went through his own transformation when he was a freshman and sophomore in college that took him through a four-year journey of anxiety and depression. And watching your adult child go through that and being able to be uh, a support for him was a blessing. But we were also the root of some of his issues. So that was fascinating. Um, having to look at yourself in the mirror as a parent and know that you did not do things well and that the scars of your decisions were now visited upon your child and you had to stand in responsibility for that. And uh, so that transformation was secondary. Our marriage went through a huge transformation where we had to choose to fight for one another. We had to choose to fight for our family, for what we wanted to be as a family, for who we wanted to be as a couple. We had to really dig deep and remember who we were when we first met and why we fell in love in the first place and why we so enjoyed being together. We kind of had to go through a lot of um, forgiveness, a lot of deep conversations, hard conversations that really got to the root of our um, individual wounds, which for both of us are the wounds of not being enough, a wound of unworthiness of being loved. And that come from our families of origin and from our own experiences before we met one another. So, yeah, in 32 years of life and being a mom and a wife, we've been through a lot. Um, But all of it, you know, is not wasted. And all of it now comes to a place six years after her death where I now get to look back at that time. And I can see the Lord's hand. I can see uh, where he challenged me, where I ran away in the opposite direction and and couldn't face it. And when I finally had the courage to step up and step into the pain and actually sit in that spot, that's the hardest thing I think for us as mothers, as wives, is to sit in the pain that we're feeling and also the pain we've caused other people and to take responsibility for that. And uh, yeah, it's been a lot, but it's also beautiful And uh, Courtney left behind a legacy of tremendous love. Uh, She taught us how to love with our entire lives. You know, she could do nothing for us to earn our love. She could do nothing um, to, you know, she wasn't going to be a ballerina or a, a lawyer or anything like that. She was just Courtney. And so we loved her because that's all we could do. And she reminded us, she mirrored for us the relationship we have with God the Father. We have nothing. We do, we do nothing to earn his love. It is freely given his gift. And that's what parenting taught us, um, is that we love our children like God loves us. But we love with conditions. He loves without. That's such a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. And Gosh, you're just so eloquent with every single aspect of that journey, too. I would love to dig in a little bit deeper on a couple parts of that. Uh, I'll just footnote that I I wanted to bring up and dig into the marriage part that you mentioned later, but we we can talk about that for uh, a follow-up question. But when I really want to know that when you were going through the difficult time, you mentioned that, you know, it started off being very jaded. And then finally having that experience at Lourdes and coming to that place of peace and acceptance and surrender. I'm wondering if if there's anything that you wish someone would have told you that you, looking back, you think it would have helped you in your journey to, to maybe arrive at that peace sooner? Or is do you think that that's just something that people have to wrestle with themselves or, or any advice, I guess, for a mom who you know, maybe she's going through a similar, extremely difficult circumstance, or or maybe it's even on a very smaller scale, you know, maybe it's a mental health issue or or something like that. 
Um, what, what do you wish someone would have told you? I think uh, here's the thing about that. When you're in the midst of great trial, and I mean like it's a dumpster fire and it's getting ready to, to jump dumpsters, you know, and light another one on fire kind of um, trial, anything anybody tells you, it's very rare that you will find solace, at least for me. I didn't want to be surrounded by positive and happy people. They were annoying to me. <laughs> what, what worked for me, you know, they were just... It, it was instant. It felt insincere. I know they were doing their best, but they weren't living my life. They didn't understand because I could see what I could see and they could only see what I wanted them to see. So for me, what made the most impact were the people that literally came alongside us. They didn't give us platitudes. They would show up on a Thursday afternoon at four o'clock with a fully made meal. Hmm. You know, they would have asked all the questions and regular conversation of what we liked and what we didn't like. And if there were, you know, all of those things we ask when we're bringing someone a meal, that would have been done like a month Mm. prior and no conversation would have ever happened about it. They would just show up Mm. with it. They would come over on a Tuesday morning after I would put up on Instagram or Facebook that we had been in the hospital and we had just gotten home, you know, after a night full of seizures and she had to have the rescue meds. And they would come at 10, 1030 with a cup of coffee. Wow and some muffins. And they would be like, I want you to sit down here and just drink this. I'm going to go do your laundry. Mm. And they would do our laundry. That to me, when somebody is willing to sacrifice their own life and come to care for another physically, like one of the things I learned with Courtney is I never say to people, well, I'm here if you need me. Mm. That's the biggest cop out we can give to one another. Because it doesn't, it means I don't have to do anything because you, as the person who's in the trial are never going to ask me to right. help exactly. because no you don't want to bother anybody. Yeah, no one asks ever and <laughs> say, Hey, you know, that time you said I needed help. No like, one asks, it right? Yeah. It's a very rare situation where they do. So I don't, I don't do that. I don't say, Hey, I'm here to help you. No, I show up and do it. Now I might show up and they might really be in a place where they're like, they might not answer the door. In which case, you know, I make sure that I always come with a cooler and I put it with the ice packs or whatever if I'm bringing a meal and I knock on the door or they might open the door and they might be like, Mary, I can't handle. And my point is, it's not about me. I'm like, I'm not here to chat with you. If you want to chat, I'm here. If you don't put this casserole in at 350 when your kids are hungry for 25 minutes and you have dinner. I love you. I'm praying for you. Goodbye. It cannot be about us. Courtney taught us that it was never about her. You know, it had to be, um, it had to be about something bigger than her. And that's what we had to come, we had to kind of figure out and wrestle with. So as far as advice to give to people, um, I'm not really big on advice unless I'm asked, like, was there a prayer? Yes. The divine mercy chaplet. That was very helpful to us. The family rosary. Yes. That brought us great peace. But other than that, it's, it's really the physical act of walking with someone through a trial of tribulation. Another thing that I loved and I still love to this day is when someone would send me mail, like a beautiful card mm. that said, I prayed the rosary for you today. Or Mary, I just want you to know we're thinking about you and we love you and we love Courtney. And I was thinking, you know, they tell me a story about how they were thinking about Courtney and, and it brightened their day or something like that on a beautiful, happy little stationery, and it would show up in the mail, totally unexpected. And you would for one moment go, wow, somebody thought about me. Somebody thought about me. That means so much. Somebody saw me today. And that's the beauty of accompaniment because we're meant to be in a community, in accompaniment. And like right now in the way our world is shaped and what's happening out in our world, that's all been, you know, destroyed basically it's all been challenged so now we have to really even overcome what's around us and and how you know how the darkness has come pressing in on us but the light always overcomes it the darkness never overcomes the light the light is us and it's our kindness and it's our love of neighbor and it's our um, willingness to set aside our own needs in order to serve another 
with grace. That would be my advice. That's such good advice. And I I love how you said that, you know, super positive people when you're going through a hard time don't really help at all. I I always wondered if it helped for some people because it it never really helped for, for myself when I was going through hard time. But just what you were saying about coming and sitting with people that I, I've heard that from a couple of grief counselors talk about that that's just basically the best thing that you can do. It's not necessarily something that you say. It's just being present with some someone. And just as you were saying that in our society, that's just so uncommon. People just try to be too, quote, polite and don't want to intrude or whatnot. But gosh, if, if someone's just dropping off a meal for you and not even saying hi because you can't come to the door or whatever, I mean, who wouldn't like like that? That's, I mean, that's really showing a lot of love. Yeah, it's it's loving them right where they are. The thing about positive people is I, I'm a very positive person myself. Mm-hmm. I I used to be one of those happy, clappy people, like, just pray about it. Just pray about it. Um, I don't say that anymore. My answer is, yes, you pray, but you also do the next right thing. Like, what has to happen now? You know, in order for you to save your marriage, what must you do? Yes, you pray. Mm -hmm. Yes, you fast. Absolutely. Those should always be there. But what is the next action you must take? You need to get a counselor. Great. How can I help you with that? We're taking a quick break from this episode to thank our episode sponsor, Usual Wines. Don't forget to check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use our promo code MOTHERGOOD, $8 off your first order and try your first glass of wine on us. I wanted to talk a little bit about the different types of wine that Usual Wines is offering this summer. They have a red blend, a rosé, and a sparkling white wine called Brut. And just for this summer only, they have a Brut Rosé. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, each bottle of Usual Wines is about a glass and a half of wine. So if you want to enjoy that glass of Rosé or Brut Rosé, and no one else that you're celebrating with enjoys sparkling wine, you can go ahead and pour yourself that glass of sparkling wine and not have to waste the rest of the bottle. And you can enjoy that glass guilt-free as the wine is low carb and has zero grams of sugar. Their wine is shipped directly to your front door so you don't have to go out and brave the grocery stores and masks or whatnot. So don't forget to go check out their website at www.usualwines.com and use the promo code MOTHERGOOD for $8 off your first order. You know, do you want my list of counselors that I have? Um, What needs to happen for this child to receive what they need, for your family to receive what they need? There's always, you know, prayer is, I had a priest once say, everybody always says, oh, pray about it. Like it's your last resort. Right. No, prayer is your only resort. It should be the first, the middle and the last. It's always there. But what is the action that that prayer leads you to? Right. How can we assist one another in our parenting, in our mothering of each other? Um, you know, we as mothers still need mothers. You will always need your mother. Mm-hmm. And if your relationship with your own mother is broken, um, then your how you look at yourself as a mother is broken. You know, and if you're blessed to have a relationship that is good, then the way you look at your own mothering is different from how someone who doesn't have that relationship looks at them. So we are made to mother one another, especially when brokenness exists in those relationships. So it's, um, you know, it's the golden rule. We're made to love each other. That's our one job. I love that because I've also just heard so many people just say, oh, just pray about it or I'm just praying about it. But it's an issue that needs an action along with the prayer. And that's often the missing element you know, in a lot of those sorts of situations. So that's so important to make sure that you have that, that action item as well. What about uh, you mentioned that you came to when you were saying that you came to peace with the situation with Courtney and, you know, your lives and obviously with, you know, the action that you're taking along with prayer and everything. How did you eventually come to accept that what God's purpose was for Courtney? Because I hear this a lot. I think it's one of the the main reasons why a lot of people even doubt God's existence is the whole argument that, you know, how could a good God do something like this? 
And I know that a lot of people struggle who have gone through suffering do struggle with this. And sometimes suffering turns you closer to God. And in your case, that's what happened. But many times it turns you away. So what was your thought process at arriving to that reconciliation with God having a good purpose uh, for Courtney and in your family? Well, there's a couple of things. First, God does not make mistakes. God knew before the beginning of time, who Courtney would be and what her life would be. He knew who I would be and what my life would be. And he is fascinated with us. He is in love with us. He created us out of love, in love, and for love. And so to say that God got, you know, that Courtney's disability came from God is wrong, number one. Sin entered the world in the Garden of Eden, right? So sin enters the world and it messes up the original plan. The plan is that he loves us, he made everything beautiful for us in perfection, and that he has a plan for our life, a mission for us, shall we say. And then sin entered the world, Adam and Eve made a choice to choose themselves over God. That's what sin is, when we choose ourselves over God. And it messed everything up. So then what did he do? He sent Jesus. All right, he sent Jesus. This is where this idea of redemptive suffering comes in. When you were saying Suffering sometimes turns people towards God and other people away. The difference between those two people is a choice that they themselves are making. It's a choice to see the suffering as an opportunity to grow closer to our Lord, to understand just a sliver of what it was like for him to give his life for me. Because I I'm a woman of sin. I am a person that makes mistakes all the time. And yet God already, he's already healed that. He's already paid the price for that. That's what we believe as Christians, right? And so I could make a choice to go toward him, or I could make a choice to go away from him, to be mad at him. And what I figured out with Courtney is that I can be walking toward him and still be mad. That's the beauty of our relationship. Good friends can be mad at each other and still love each other. They can be annoyed with what the other one did and still be in a good relationship. You have to work through that, right? And what Courtney did for us was she showed us who we are inside out. We are all differently abled people. I can do things you cannot do. You can do things I cannot do. There are things that Courtney couldn't do that I can do. She was just differently abled, but God endowed her with everything she possibly could need to do the mission he gave for her. And we believe that that mission was a mission of love. She was the face of Christ to so many. She brought people into the church as converts. She brought people to understand that there is a God. People who had never prayed before, never entered into a conversation before. When Courtney was in the hospital and I would put out on social media that we needed prayers, I would get emails from people that said, I am an atheist and have been my whole life, but I'm really hoping and wishing that this situation turns out positively. And my answer to that would be, you just prayed for my daughter. That's and beautiful. I thank you for it. What, what you said about choosing, that just reminds me so much on what I've even heard Holocaust survivors say about their experience. And when I, when I was in college, I was fortunate to take a class on Holocaust history. And I, in Los Angeles, there's, there's a big club called the, the 1949 club, and it's just all Holocaust survivors. And uh, when I spoke with the individuals who had actually survived the Holocaust, I mean, that, that's something that they even talked about that they, you know, some of them, Actually, most of them at that club, they're just all so joyful and they just were radiating joy. And I just couldn't understand how someone who had gone through something so horrific could be so joyful. And then I know a lot of other people came out very bitter about it. And, and that's exactly you know what they said. They're just, it's all about forgiveness and choosing to you know, come closer to God or choosing joy, choosing the peace instead of the bitterness. And and that's that just reminded me so much of, of what you were saying. And that, that rings yeah. so much. Unforgiveness only rots the vessel in which it is kept. Mm. Unforgiveness only hurts me. Right. Um, it doesn't hurt the other people, person I'm mad at. They're not even giving me a second thought. Exactly. And so when you look at someone that survived something so horrific as the Holocaust, 
um, or someone that is walking through cancer or someone that is walking through being a parent of a child of a disability or someone who's disabled themselves. You look at all of the, all of the things, they're constantly shown their mortality, constantly shown that they have a short amount of time right? This life is just a short amount of time. This is the, the pregame warmup to an eternity with God. And so what is happening here is that we're all getting a chance to try out for the team. You know, we're all like, we're either going to cheer each other on or we're going to tear each other down. We're either going to be light or we're going to be darkness. We're either going to, um, choose our words to give life or we're going to take it away. And people that have been through very hard things, um, they have to make a choice because love costs us something. Love costs mm. Jesus his life. Love cost me my old life. I had to lay down my old life in my marriage and I had to lay down my old life in my parenting and my motherhood. I had to lay down my old life and my friendships in order to live the life that God wants for me. And Courtney was our guide in that because she just loved. She was only capable of loving and receiving love. That's all she could do. And she did it beautifully without ever speaking a word or taking a step. And she suffered with grace and with dignity. And I know on the day that we buried her, I remember very specifically standing next to her grave. And I was in between my two boys. Jonathan was to my left holding my hand and my husband, Jerry, was to my right. And we just stood there and we looked at each other. And I said to both of them, don't ever forget this moment because we loved her well. We did everything we could to make her life the best life she could have with the circumstances she was given. And now we need to, we need to do the very same thing for each other. Hmm. We cannot forget what she has taught us. And that's why I have spent six years totally giving up my old life for this new life that God has asked me to embrace, which is bringing encouragement and hope and healing and empathy to other people that are walking through darkness. Hmm. We have to choose the light. It is a choice. God's never going to force it on us. We have to choose faith and we have to believe because faith gives us hope and hope brings us to this place of love. And those are the three things he left us with. And the greatest of these is love. That's so beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. I would love to switch gears a little bit now and talk about the marriage aspect that you've been talking a little bit briefly about. Uh, we've had some marriage psychologists on the show before to give more of clinical advice, I guess you could say, from merit for marriages who are struggling or if people just want to improve their marriage in general and or just have a, a healthy outlook and relationship in their marriages. What, I know that you said that you don't like giving advice, but uh, for lack of better uh, way to phrase this question, do you have any advice for people who uh, do want to have a healthy marriage? I know that you said that you did struggle with you know, how you and your husband, Jerry, both responded to this difficult circumstance with Courtney. Uh, what, I guess what when your wisdom or do you have any wisdom to impart on those younger folks who are just want to have a good, healthy marriage and relationship? Sure. Um, I have lots of wisdom because you know what wisdom is? Wisdom is what you learned from when you did it all wrong. So I've got a lot of that because um, <laughs> I did it all wrong. The first thing I would say is there's, there are three in marriage. As a Christian, I believe this with my whole heart. God has to be present. And if God is not present in your marriage, and, and I take that even to a higher step in, within your bedroom, within the most intimate act between husband and wife, if God is not present in that, there's someone waiting at the door to take his place. And that's what addiction will bring into your marriage. I speak to a lot of women whose husbands are addicted to pornography or they themselves have had issues with it. And my, my biggest moment of wisdom for them is to say, first of all, don't give up on each other. Um, you know, you are in a sacramental marriage unless there is abuse or uh, of some kind in which, of course, that is not that is not good. Remove yourself from that. Um, but if it's if it's a situation where, you know, you're both fighting for what you think your marriage should be and you're both on opposite pages, um, don't give up on each other. Sit down and figure it out. Get counseling. 
Um, I think a lot of people are afraid of that. Uh, it still has some sort of stigma, which is ridiculous at this point. Um, it's always good to have a third party that's not emotionally involved in your marriage to help you figure out how to communicate well with each other. Um, but don't give up on each other. Remember why you said yes. There was a reason why when he got down on one knee, or maybe he didn't get down on one knee, but when he asked the question, you gave your yes. What is that reason? Because that reason still exists. It's still there. It might be buried under a bunch of crap, but it's still there. And sometimes it takes some time to peel back the expectations that we bring into our marriage of the other person. Like I expected, you know, that my husband would be a flag officer in the Navy. We would have a country club membership. My kids would go to private school. They would be perfect. And, you know, we would look like we were coming out of a Southern Living magazine. That in my mind was my marriage. You know, that that was my future. It was going to be beautiful, right? <laughs> so what what happens? Uh, he resigns his commission as a lieutenant because our daughter is severely disabled. There is no Catholic school uniform. There is no country club membership. Um, there is just a bunch of confusion. And there's selfishness and pride that turned into addiction um, that over time, we finally looked at one another and we decided that it was less painful for us to try and be different and try and do differently than it was for us to remain where we are. And that was a choice. That was a choice mm. to love each other in that way, which meant I wanted his good over my own and he wanted my good over his own. So that, that whole idea of expectation of, um, of what somebody else's marriage looks like, because you got to remember social media um, and even what they say at a party, you know, back in the day when we didn't have social media, they're only giving you the best parts. They're not giving you the day to day. Right. You know, they're just not, it's a, it's a beautiful little magazine clip. So stop the comparison <laughs> and start the celebration. Stop comparing him to Thor, uh, with his dad bod and start <laughs> appreciating that, you know, he gets up every Saturday and mows the lawn and does the things and you do your things or well, however that works within your marriage. And just appreciate the gift of who he is. Because when we start appreciating our spouses for the gift of who they are, it's amazing what can happen with them. They in turn begin to see themselves as gift and they start giving as gift. And it changes. We transform one another. Jerry is my path to sanctification. I don't get to heaven without him. I learned that. And so I want the very best for him, both spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, and he wants the same for me. And so we challenge each other, you know, it's not, it, it's, there's a challenge there to the other to be better, a better version of ourselves to keep walking in holiness. So as far as advice, don't give up, don't give up on yourselves and don't give up on God, because it's not possible for him to give up on you and get the help you need. Surround yourself with people that um, exude a holiness in their marriage. And I'm not talking, when I say holiness, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking like um, a very, yeah, a very radical like religiosity. I mean, like they're good people to each other. They love one another. You see the little things she does for him and the little things he does for her, you know, that are unique to them. Like Jerry does not buy fresh flowers does not. To him, they are a waste of money because they just died. And he would rather take that 30 or 40 or $50 and spend it on a good meal or on something else that, that you know, has meaning. I adore fresh flowers. I love them so much. And so it is our tradition after arguing about it for like the first 10 years of our marriage, that on our anniversary, it doesn't matter the cost. I get fresh flowers and they are stunning. They're stunning. And when we were really poor and Courtney was in the ICU and it was really bad, carnations with baby's breath were the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Because I knew that that man had gone out while I was in the ICU with our daughter and found a flower that could be brought into the hospital and not banned because mm. they, they have precautions on that. And something that was in my favorite color that looked feminine that he could bring into the hospital and say to his wife, I appreciate right now that you're the one in the ICU because he does not have the personality for hospitals. Mm -hmm. 
Um, he's been asked to leave several because he has this look on his face that looks like Stalin invading a foreign country. <laughs> and it's very disconcerting to the medical staff. So the hospital is not where you want Jerry to be. But for me, it was fine. It was my second language. So, you know, I was good. But that's what he would do. Mm. He does the dishes. Uh, something his father did every night. I cook, he does the dishes. You know, we have friends that are like, my husband would never do the dishes. Yes, but your husband cleans out his gutters every week. It takes me five reminders and a note on his computer to say, please clean out the gutters. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's, you can't compare marriages. So We're so unique as individuals and as men and as women that to compare to one another is just, you're going to, it's going to end badly. Just don't. That's Jerry is Thor. In my mind, he is Thor. He looks just like him. <laughs> I love that. That kind of reminds me of an episode we had a couple weeks ago on, you know, disappointment when celebrity marriages and other marriages fail. I mean, not to get on a complete, like, you know, mm-hmm. tangent, but like a Rachel and Dave Hollis thing. Yes, yeah. That's exactly mm-hmm. what triggered it because I know that so many people were disappointed in it. And even myself, I, you know, as I, I mentioned in that episode that I never really considered myself a fan of hers, but you know, you always hope for the best in, in other people. And so, you know, seeing just someone who's just overly positive all the time and only talking about the good parts. And then suddenly they're like, oh, by the way, we're getting divorced. It's just shocking. And just a good reminder too, that to not compare yourself, because just as you were saying that, you know, your husband might do one thing, um, but then not another. And, and it's not the same as what someone else's husband does. <laughs> they have their strengths and weaknesses as well. So that's, that's such a good point. And we have to remember in community to really support one another. Like not, I I learned early as a Navy wife to not walk into a room and speak negatively Mm -hmm. about my husband. Even if I was really irritated because X, Y, and Z had happened and I was like hot (laughs) under the collar, I would smile and I would say, you know, we're doing well because really what you're doing in that situation is you are exposing something very private and sensitive to gossip and to sin. You're opening it up for judgment. And, um, I used to do that all the time and I learned at about year seven or eight to, Hmm. to just not. And that really helped. It really helped because nothing ever came back to him that I had said negatively, which happened before. Um, and, and I began to kind of really treat our marriage as something that was very special and very precious and something that needed tending and caring instead of something that just was on a legal document. You know, this is a, a living and breathing sacrament this sacrament of marriage. And we must treat it like that. The season we're in now looks like it looks because we treated our marriage, you know, a certain way in the beginning and then in the middle and then toward the, you know, second half of the middle. Um, and God kept coming in and redeeming and restoring and redeeming and restoring mm. because we would lay our pride down and, and ask for that help. So marriage needs tending. You know, it's not necessarily date nights all the time because not everybody can do Mm -hmm. that, but it needs tending. It needs conversation. It needs quiet time away from children. It needs intimate contact with one another. Um, It needs, you know, you go back to when you were dating, you know, you would, you would think of nothing else but wanting to spend time with Mm -hmm. your beloved. And here you are 15 years into marriage or 10 years into marriage or five years into marriage. And you're like, yeah, no, I'm good. Thanks. Yeah, no. Go back and remember. Try again. You know, that's what what is the beauty of time is that if you wake up in the morning, there's still work for you to do. God still has a purpose and a plan that you have yet to achieve. So try again. That I, I love that advice too. Gosh, I'm. <laughs> I know we're running out of time. Um, I just wanted to talk about a completely unrelated subject, but still related to motherhood. I just wanted to kind of squeeze it in at the end, just because I know that this issue comes up a lot for mothers. And you also talk about this on your social media account sometimes. So I I just wanted to pick your brain a little bit on the topic of body image. I know that you've mentioned that on some of your posts and how your old negative thoughts have come up and then how you've come to peace with your body. And I know so many moms struggle with this. So Maybe uh, in in closing, you could just talk briefly about that sort of journey and and how you have a positive outlook on your body now. Sure. Um, Well, I used to be very tall. I'm 5'10", so I used to be very tall and thin. I was a runner in high school and, um, you know, and then overnight I 
my body changed and there were lumps and bumps that weren't present before. And that was hard for me because when I ran, it felt different. So I stopped running. And then, you know, the emotional side of it came and, and I started overeating way back in high school, junior high. So that's been in my life for a very long time, my emotional overeating. Um, and then, you know, I had children. And so the beauty of a woman's body of what we are able to do, um, bringing forth children from our bodies. Um, I mean, it changes things. It's going to change the landscape of things. And in our minds, we're thinking, oh, I'm just having a baby and then I'll go back to the way it was. No, <laughs> you, you don't just have a baby. Or if you're unable to physically have a child, you don't just adopt a child. Or if you are, you know, single and you're going through emotional time and you're eating or you're, um, you're just discouraged with how your body looks. No, your, your body tells a story. It takes you on a journey. Um, and what it told me for a long time was that I was out of control and I was ugly and that, um, you know, I have stretch marks all through the middle part of my body because of my babies and how my body carried my babies. Um, and I really had to, I like literally stood in front of the mirror naked as a jaybird and just looked at myself. And I almost threw up. I will never forget this. I think I was like 32. And I was just like, this cannot be. And so I went on this kind of little journey of um, trying to fix it. Well, I what I had to learn was that I'm just fine as I am. And I'm just fine. I, I, I tend to look a lot like Mrs. Claus, very round. And, um, and I'm, that's very, you know, not what I used to be. But this journey over the past 20 years or so has been me slowly walking into the fact that my body might look a certain way, but it's my heart and my soul that counts. And I am beautiful as I am because my body tells the story of my life. I have a, I have Irish German heritage. I look exactly like my great grandmother back in Germany, the larger upper arms, um, a large chest, an apple middle, and no backside. And these women would make bread for a family of 14. And these women would go out into the fields. And these women, uh, my great grandmother, they had a hotel. And so she was the, the mistress of the hotel. She, they are working people, right? And they, their bodies were shaped in a way that when hard times came, uh, the skinny ones uh, were not present anymore after a famine, but my family was, you know? So, I mean, there were, we were made in a way to survive. And mm-hmm. so when I honor the history of my genes, when I, on my genetic makeup, when I honor my past, when I look at, yeah, you know, you were so lost for so long and you found so much joy in a cupcake and now you might not enjoy really eating the cupcake, but you still love baking <laughs> them and giving them away then look at the joy of that. You know, look at the joy that your body brings. My husband, praise God, after battling an addiction of pornography for the majority, you know, of the first 14 years of our marriage, he does something so beautiful to me. He will look at me in the most intimate moments of our marriage and he will tell me what is beautiful to him. And you know what he says? It's all the parts I hate. It's the fluffy middle because it says I made cupcakes last week. It's the larger upper arms that used to carry our daughter who was 120 pounds from her wheelchair to the ground for her therapies. I lifted mm-hmm. her, you know, 20, 30 times a day. It's um, my short neck. I have no neck because it makes him work harder for the kisses. You know, it's, it's the body that has walked beside him and has loved him with my whole life. And he speaks that to me now. In turn, I speak love to him because this is a man who's bald. You know, he, he had a full head of hair when we married, totally bald. And, and, you know, and he looks at me and, and that bothers him. And I'm like, you are so handsome. If Sean Connery can pull it off, you can pull it off. So, you know, I'm good with that. And he's a big Star Trek fan. So I'm like, come on, John Luke Picard, you're, you're just doing just fine. <laughs> a distinguished that. old man. But the point is, is that we speak these things to one another in how we love each other. And so part of my healing as a woman and as a mother was to accept that my body had done some pretty freaking awesome things and that I'm not done yet. I might be 53 in a month, 
but I'm still strong. I'm still capable of movement. I'm still capable of working out. I'm still capable of going for walks with my friends. And I look forward, if so, God, you know, so blesses me with grandchildren of chasing them, of teaching them how to make those cupcakes, of being um, the woman that God needs me to be. And right now that woman looks like a cake pop. And that's okay because I know who I am. I know who I am in God and I know who God is in me. And when he looks at me, he sees nothing but perfection, nothing Mm. but perfection. When he looks at those stretch marks, he's like, that's Courtney. That's Jonathan. I know Mm. I named those, you know, when he looks Mm -hmm. at my upper arms, he's like, that's that loaf of bread. You bought the family that lost their little boy in a car accident. That's Mm. that. I mean, you have to start looking at yourself. Like God looks at you. And the, the way you get there is by receiving his love. A lot of us reject it. We, we get so overwhelmed with the idea that somebody can love us exactly as we are, right where we are, looking as we do, without one stitch of makeup or hair dye, with all the things that we can actually be loved. And the mm-hmm. most amazing thing is that God loves us that way, without condition or parameter or barrier, in pure, total purity, pure joy. And he, he created us in his likeness and image. So I look like God. I mean, I don't know what part of God I look like, but I mean, I look like him and you look like him and Mm -hmm. our hearts and our souls, you know, are the most beautiful parts of us. Our bodies, what I look forward to, what I look forward to, especially with my daughter is I can't wait to see her glorified body. I cannot wait Mm -hmm. to see my glorified body. You know, this is just a temporary state. This is but a season. And when we get so wrapped up, especially after we've had babies and we're, we're a year out of baby and you're like, you still got that jello middle. You still got this over here. You still, you know, the, the, your chest used to be in Connecticut and now it's in New Mexico. What do we do about <laughs> that? You know, I mean, all of these things happen, but yet think about it. You have the great privilege of creating a human being and there are women that would give up an arm, a leg, they would give a piece of themselves to have that privilege. So remember that when you look, be gentle when you look in, in the mirror, because that to be that co-creative um, partner with Christ is a privilege and a blessing and not a right. And so you, we have to keep all of that in our minds. You were made to love and to serve with your whole self. And you have done that with your body. And so it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, and, you know, there's nothing that a great, you know, lipstick and pair of statement earrings can't fix. So <laughs> I, love that. I say go for it. That, that That's the perfect way to end this episode that just ties everything so beautifully into, you know, our whole mission of it's okay to not be a perfect mom and it's okay to be a good one instead. And you just summarize it so eloquently. So thank you so much, Mary, for coming on our show and sharing your wisdom. And I I just really learned so much from you and enjoyed our conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. It's an absolute joy to be here with you. 